yes, we do need something different than the ballistic missile defenses of the past because that was designed for a different problem. The good news is we can adapt that and adapt our air defenses uh, to contend with it. It may be that they become predominant, that the characteristic of hypersonic weapons become much more uh, prolific and dominant uh, in the in the spectrum of, of missiles that, that the militaries arm themselves with. But at the end of the day, these are just missiles. This is what uh, great power competition looks like, is there's going to be urgency to uh, procuring certain kinds of capability. Welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, we're tackling the subject of hypersonic weapons. Russia has reportedly used hypersonic missiles recently against targets in Ukraine. And in March, the United States successfully tested a hypersonic missile of its own developed as part of a DARPA project. So these weapons have really been the subject of pretty considerable public attention lately. But what truly sets them apart beyond just velocity from existing missile technology? Are they a game changer on the strategic landscape, or are they better understood as just the next evolutionary step in missile development? What implications do they have from a defense perspective? My guest on this episode addresses those questions and more. Tom Carrico is the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and he joined me for this really fascinating conversation that you're about to hear. Before we get to it, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the podcast and have just a moment, please consider giving it a rating or leaving a review. It really helps new listeners to find us. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Tom Carrico. Tom, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. John, thanks uh, for the invitation. Glad to be here. So I asked you to come on the podcast to talk about hypersonic weapons. This is a subject that's obviously been in the news a little bit lately. And I came across a report that you had co-authored that was published by the Missile Defense Project that you lead at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It is a, um, it's a fascinating report, frankly. I found it fascinating. And I'll make sure that we share a link so that listeners can read it for themselves. But before we kind of get into this specific topic, I wonder if you could maybe describe the Missile Defense Project and, and the work that your team does. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, so we, we set up the, uh, the Missile Defense Project here at CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C. Uh, we set it up uh, in 2015. Uh, and I think the idea, the basic idea, was that, look, missile defense is one of those things that's been around for forever. Uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion in the policy world. It's kind of a mile wide and inch deep. And we wanted to kind of stand something up to, to focus on uh, enriching that, uh, that conversation a little bit. So over the past number of years, uh, we've put out a lot of reports, a lot of papers. But we also host a lot of events, convene conversations to kind of drive and, and I would say, uh, enrich the uh, the conversation a little bit about all things uh, air and missile defense. So everything mud to space, uh, as it were, uh, it's, it's, we really do both offensive uh, and defensive. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's a fun job. It's a bit of policy, a bit of budgets, uh, and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's, we, we've now grown to about five people uh, full-time that are, that are working here in the Missile Defense Project. Uh, and again, it's kind of Homeland Cruise Missile Defense, counter UAVs, 
Um, we'll do a lot of deep dives on the budget uh, every year uh, to kind of understand it from that perspective and just, just a, a host of things. And I invite people to check out our website, uh, missilethreat.csis.org, and you'll see uh, a good sampling of the kind of things we do. It's interesting to me that you that the project stood up in 2015 because, you know, we always talk about the Army, the the Joint Force, the Defense Department being in this sort of era of transition from the post 9-11 wars and the sort of stability operations and low intensity conflict and irregular warfare that uh, that those wars embodied, for lack of a better term, to this new era of strategic competition with other great powers Um we talk about that as, you know, that we're in this transition, but we have been in it for several years. And and I think 2015 probably marks a point that uh, a pretty good kind of starting point of that transition. It, there are certain efforts certainly that predated it. But I think back to uh, in 2006, a really good friend of mine commissioned in the army uh, and commissioned as an air defense officer. And he was devastated. He said, you know, this is a backwater. Nobody cares about it. We don't, you know, we're not shooting anything down these days. And it just strikes me how far we've come, how far we came really in a decade from 2006 to, you know, 2015, when you launched the project uh, in terms of really recalibrating our areas of focus. Um, Has it been since 2015? Has it sort of felt like a, a growth industry for, you know, again, for lack of a better phrase? Oh, absolutely. And I would add a few other historical data points there. Your, your friend in the 2006 timeframe, I mean, he could have been on an Avenger or something like that. Um, but in 2012, uh, you know, the U.S. Army uh, the Department really made a decision uh, post-sequestration to uh, uh, get rid of a lot of its uh, air defense efforts, uh, especially its, its short-range or short range air defense things, because, hey, we were in engaging uh, on the CT counterterrorism thing, and we had air superiority as a, as a, a birthright. And so it, it, the strategic decision was made to really de-emphasize that. Uh, flash forward to 20, you know, 2014 was the Crimea invasion. Uh, and then uh, by 2017, uh, then Army uh, Chief of Staff General Milley announced his, his new modernization priorities. He had a number of them he was working through and he got to number five after listing off long range fires and a number of other things. He says, but none of that matters if you're dead. And that's why you need air defense. Uh, lo and behold, the kind of the, the stingers uh, that, uh, you know, had been important in the eighties, but we had kind of gotten rid of because we, again, we took air superiority for granted. Uh, all of those things come rushing back. Uh, and the U S army is, is pushing on uh, cruise missile defense because Hey, that, that lots and lots of cruise missiles uh, out there. Uh, lots of cruise missiles being fired in Ukraine right now, uh, for instance. And so there's been this rush back uh, for, uh, for air defense uh, broadly, uh, short-range air defense, uh, kind of cruise missile defense, and then your patriots uh, on up within the, within the Army. So that's, you know, who knew uh, that air defense would be important uh, with the return of great power t- competition? Uh, we've kind of, at the Missile Defense Project, been banging that drum uh, since 2015 to say, hey, you know, history's returning, and with it comes the uh, the need for these things as well. And I think uh, where the department has gone, where the army has gone on this front uh, re- reflects that uh, that return. Good. I've got um, I've got your project's website. I've had it pulled up for a few days since we first started talking about doing this episode and and just browsing through it now for listeners that, you know, also recognize, hey, this is a thing that's returned, uh, but I want to learn a little bit more about it. It is a fantastic resource. So um, so kudos to you and 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 I recommend it to listeners. 
as we sort of shift gears away from that kind of the general discussion of air defense to to really the meat of the of of the subject that we're going to talk about today, hypersonics. You know, I remember the very first time that I at least was consciously aware of the time or that I heard the term hypersonic weapons or hypersonic missiles, uh, and it was about four or five years ago at an at an army conference. And you know, I'm not a I'm not a missile guy. I'm not an, uh, a missile defense guy. So as a non-specialist, maybe I was kind of behind the curve, and that these things have been sort of floating in the you know, say on the periphery of the kind of strategic landscape for a while. But that was the first time I heard it, and since then. You know, it seems to come up in in kind of defense discourse more and more frequently. At the same time, I you know I recognize that I have this sort of vague conception of what they are, and that they are you know sometimes talked about as a game changer. But but my, that's about as refined as my understanding is. And I think that you know I, I would imagine that we have a number of listeners who are sort of in the same boat. So I want to ask you you know to again to kick off, I'm going to ask you a complicated three part question. Uh, number one, is there you know, kind of a framing question: Is there a uh, a general consensus about you know what constitutes a hypersonic weapon, a hypersonic system? Um, two: Does the Defense Department itself, or the defense enterprise, have a definition, whether in doctrine or not? And then three: Is this sort of as new as it feels as somebody who, again, just kind of became aware of uh, of this subject about four or five years ago, or has you know does it have its roots much further back? Well, uh, thank you, John. I'm going to, I'll try to kind of answer those three parts uh, together. Uh, the answer is, uh, it's not that new. Uh, the manifestation of certain weapon systems of, that are, uh, happen to be uh, hypersonic is relatively new in one respect, uh, that the fact that, you know, Russia and China have been fielding uh, some so-called hypersonic weapons over the past several years. Uh, in the United States, the United States Army will be fielding uh, uh, the long-range hypersonic weapon in 2023, moving out very quickly uh, to that uh, to that goal. But in another respect, uh, this is uh, this is not new. Uh, I, I I find that there are, are few aspects of of uh, DoD jargon uh, that are not informed by just looking at the word and defining the word and thinking about the etymology of things uh, before you start you know using words uh, over and over again. Uh, I would say that fundamentally, hypersonic is just a speed. It is simply a speed. Uh, uh, it's really corresponding to a set of thermal uh, and aerodynamic conditions that begin around, not, not, not like a light switch at Mach 5, but around Mach 5. Uh, and that, that, is, that set of conditions uh, is challenging to sustain uh, flight in without ending catastrophically. And so... Uh, Mach 5 just means a speed. Any ballistic reentry vehicle, when it's coming back into the atmosphere, uh, is going to be going at, at well over Mach 5, but it's not sustained hypersonic flight. And so when we talk about hypersonic weapons, what we're really talking about is the ability to sustain that high Mach uh, flight conditions for, for an extended period of time, right? And so that's why you have you know, lift, uh, uh, hypersonic glide bodies with a high lift-to-drag ratio, the, super, the, the space shuttle. Uh, the space shuttle was coming in at hypersonic speeds. It, it's a glider. Uh, it just wasn't sustaining it for an extended period of, of powered flight. It's just re-entering as well. But the other way in which these things are not new, in fact, if you take a look at the Google engram that tracks the use of language over time, uh, there's a whole lot of use, more usage of the word hypersonic back in the 50s and the 60s uh, than there is today, uh, notwithstanding all the headlines, and all the clickbait. 
uh, that mm. we see today with the word hypersonic. But, uh, and the reason is the X-15 uh, and all these kinds of things, those were hypersonic uh, vehicles as well. It's just that we, we as a country and, and other countries said, well, our ICBMs are going to be good enough. And so we kind of took a step back from developing it back in the 60s. And so we really focused on ICBMs. Later, we came with conventional cruise missiles. But what you're seeing now is, is a, a return and kind of demand signal for more advanced uh, delivery systems. And that's really what this set of, of missilery uh, is about, is more advanced uh, forms of flight different trajectories, less predictable trajectories, because that, that ICBM is highly predictable uh, in its flight path. And the combination of speed, it's not just about the speed, it's a combination of speed, a relatively lower profile in the atmosphere by definition, uh, and less, um, uh, less predictability, as I said, that's what gives it their particular uh, interest uh, and, the, and the reason everybody wants them right now. You mentioned Mach 5 is the sort of you know, the line that separates hypersonic from non-hypersonic uh, missiles. And forgive me if I sort of get the nomenclature or the categorical sort of taxonomy incorrect, but if ballistic missiles can theoretically at least re-enter the atmosphere at hypersonic speeds, they just won't maintain that or won't sustain it for uh, for long periods of time. And then you have cruise missiles, uh, this other category. How, what else sort of distinguishes hypersonics if it's not solely speed or is it solely speed? Right. It's, it's the fact that uh, it's going at high speeds, uh, but it's able to, you know, use control surfaces to maneuver, right, uh, to maneuver at, at high hypersonic speeds. That ballistic RV is probably not going to be doing a whole lot of maneuvering, uh, although I will say that the, the uh, gliders that are being developed in field today are close cousins of past uh, weapon programs that were called MARVs, or maneuvering reentry vehicles. So mm -hmm. uh, that, that legacy... Right, it is kind of a reflection of the fact that the research on this stuff has been going on for decades and decades and decades, but it's only relatively recently where, you know, as you may recall, in the early two thousands, the interest in conventional prompt strike, right, it, it was there, it was talked about, and it didn't really catch fire, and it kind of took the return of history, uh, and the the the, the uh, resurgence of Russian Chinese uh, geopolitical ambitions to say, oh, you know, we really do need uh, uh, more advanced. Uh, forms of strike, uh, because as we discussed earlier, you know, lo and behold, we can't take air superiority for granted. Uh, and uh, now we're having these precision guided munitions and advanced uh, forms of attack directed back at us. You mentioned uh, hypersonic glide vehicles. Is that one sort of subset of, of hypersonic weapons generally? Um, I think there's also hypersonic cruise missiles. I mean, you know, in my head, I can kind of you know, imagine a picture of how they're different, but what, what distinguishes the two sort of subcategories? Right. So I, I really emphasize that although those are two categories that are currently being pursued right now, uh, that the future is not going to be limited to that by any stretch uh, of the imagination. So think a hypersonic glider is basically uh, a pointy winged looking thing uh, that's sitting on top of a, a big ballistic missile. And it uses that rocket to get up to speed. And then it, it kind of enters the atmosphere uh, inserts itself into a, a certain uh, altitude and then uses that that speed uh, with a relatively thin atmosphere, but it's going so fast that, again, the lift-to-drag ratio is just enough to keep it uh, aloft. Now, if it was doing those same speeds at very low altitudes, it would just burn up, 
right? And so it has to be at the, the right altitude. Uh, the, the so-called hypersonic cruise missile is just a cruise missile. It's going at, at slower speeds. It's going to be at a lower altitude. Uh, but those uh, will uh, characteristically use a, a, what's called a scramjet. It doesn't have a whole lot of moving parts. It uses some kind of, of rocket to get up to speed. And then at that point, uh, it uses this, uh, this supersonic uh, ramjet to keep going. Uh, so different animals. It's a, it's a form of propulsion that really characterizes that. Now, why do I emphasize that there's not just these two types? Because those gliders may end up getting propulsion uh, attached to them. And I think in the future, we're probably going to see a spectrum, uh, a spectrum of different uh, advanced missiles. Uh, and so, so look, at some point, we're going to start, we're going to stop calling these things hypersonic missiles. We're just going to call them missiles uh, once they, uh, once they proliferate. The, uh, the report that, that I've mentioned a couple of times um, describes sort of some interesting things that happen from a, from a science perspective when, when a vehicle starts moving this fast at, at Mach 5 and says that, you know, these, these sort of phenomena are, are really more uh, what defines hypersonic uh, systems than just the speed. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah. Well, uh, look, the, uh, uh, the word hypersonic uh, is an American invention. Uh, it was a, a translation uh, from, from the Werner von Braun uh, and other German uh, Nazi scientists that were, were captured. And it sort of meant high supersonic. Uh, in German. Uh, but it was known then because it was a, sort of a set of phenomenon uh, that are basically, I'll just put, put it this way, uh, really complicated uh, shock. So you, you think about that, uh, that, that shock wave when something goes supersonic, but when it begins to get at a, a higher supersonic, uh, it, it begins to do funny things and it makes it harder to control that flight. So we, we kind of take for granted that a fighter aircraft can, can fly at supersonic speeds. But when you get to Mach 5 uh, and thereabout and, and higher, the shock waves do funny things. They, they uh, distort not, as well as heat up uh, the vehicle itself. And it's, it's, it's harder, it's more challenging to keep that flight controlled. Uh, and of course, we've had a, a number of tests over the years that have uh, you know, ended catastrophically uh, because it's hard to control that. We've, as, as it turns out, the, the science of, of flow uh, and and, and uh, flow dynamics has advanced. Material science has advanced. These are some of the reasons that uh, we're able to to go further on this than we have in the past. Uh, but it's it's a challenging thing. It's a it's a promising thing. I think we're going to figure this stuff out. We have already figured out uh, a lot of it. But that's that's some of the reasons. In addition to the heat uh, and the high high thermal and the violence of that regime that, that makes it challenging. Is overcoming some of those sort of you know science challenges really. Is that what has kept uh, development, what has restricted development in the past? And, you know, the fact that, you know, listeners will be familiar, I'm sure, that news broke that the U.S. tested a, a hypersonic system in uh, in, in mid-March. Uh, Russia has reportedly used such systems in Ukraine, um, something at least that ha- they've defined as, as hypersonic uh, systems. China has, has tested these. Is that all indicative of the fact that we're sort of overcoming those challenges at this point? So I think it's, again, both supply and demand, right? I mentioned the, the Werner von Braun things. I mean, he, they left behind, uh, the Germans did uh, diagrams of what we would call today a, a hypersonic glide vehicle. Uh, so it, it's been known for a very long time. And they were certainly, we and the uh, other, other folks looked at this in the 50s and 60s. But again, I think we, we decided that ICBMs were good enough. 
that that was enough bang for the buck uh, for what we were trying to do in our nuclear deterrence mission. And so it's, 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 it's in part the science and the material technology has gotten much, much better. We can model this stuff and, and they think they can figure out how to, uh, to really understand the things like boundary layer transition and such. But it's also the demand signal. The demand signal in that, hey, uh, we can't take air superiority for granted. Uh, we've got uh, a renewed uh, great power competition. And so that's, I think, the, you know, probably even the bigger uh, reason that uh, that we're scrambling for this and, and our uh, adversaries are scrambling as well. Can you can you kind of expand on that? What what capabilities, uh, what, like what, what advantages does this lend to a military that's able to field hypersonic systems? I'm glad you asked that because, you know, a lot of fo- times folks will just say, look, yeah, they go fast and yeah, they sound new, but what does it really do that a garden variety ballistic missile uh, or a garden variety cruise missile can't do? And the answer to that is it really comes from the most fundamental characteristics of these things, that they're unpredictable, that they can fly at relatively low uh, altitudes. And so you you get kind of the speed of the ballistic missile with the unpredictability of the cruise missile. Uh, But what does that translate to concretely? It means you can construct an attack differently, right? You can can create a a combined arms, as it were, of, of both the... Uh, really time critical targeting of a, of a hypersonic missile that comes in. Uh, hopefully our adversaries wouldn't even see it. And then you can f- take out certain targets, say air defenses, uh, radars, and that sort of thing, and then follow it up with your ballistic or cruise things that they might be able to not only detect, but potentially intercept. And so it's the, the combination of those effects. Now, of course, it also turns back on us. And this is one of the reasons why we're having conversations about Guam and Taiwan and and other places, because if our adversaries are getting not merely lots of cruise missiles, but potentially these more advanced uh, hypersonic things, then that's going to make it very, very challenging for us to project power, uh, say from Guam and the Pacific more broadly and the like. So then what, um, you know, presumably in tandem, you know, knowing that from a U.S. perspective, knowing that competitors, potential adversaries are pursuing these uh, presumably in tandem with that, we're thinking about how to defend against these things. What are the, some of the unique, I mean, you kind of touched on that, but what are some of the unique defense capabilities that might be required? And do we do we have a pretty firm understanding of, of what's necessary in order to defend against, say, a strike by a hypersonic cruise missile? Right. So this is where our report comes in. I appreciate your, your, uh, your plugging it. Uh, we call it complex air defense. That's the title. Uh, and the reason we call it complex air defense is, again, you better can frame and understand a problem by first understanding the phenomenon that you're dealing with. Uh, the United States for the past you know, 30 uh, plus years has, has created the ballistic missile defense system, the BMDS. Uh, so think a bunch of ground-based radars and big interceptors that go up and intercept a rogue state ballistic missile uh, reentry vehicle in space. Uh, our entire architecture for that is oriented around the basic, uh, fundamental uh, predictability of a ballistic warhead. The fact that if it comes out of North Korea or Iran, we know pretty much the flight path that it's going to go, and that that has uh, shaped where we put our radars and all this sort of stuff. Now, once that predictability goes away, then the defense design and the architecture uh, of, of your various elements that has to be entirely rethought. And so we really wanted to kind of foot stomp the differences here. It's closer to an air defense challenge. Think of a hypersonic 
glider or cruise missile as kind of like a bomber that can go any direction, anytime the pilot decides, but of course, much faster <laughs> than a bomber. And so it's an air defense challenge. And thinking about that, it's endoatmospheric, but it's also highly predictable. That is what points you in the direction of how to think about uh, active defense for these for these weapons. Now, uh, you referenced earlier, you know, the, the ideas that these are unstoppable and game changers and all this kind of stuff. And I'll just say that's kind of the, the popular conception of these things. But when you stop to think about it, uh, they're not. And that's that's the big contention of our report is, we, 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 yes, we do need something different than the ballistic missile defenses of the past, because that was designed for a different problem. The good news is we can adapt that and adapt our air defenses uh, to contend with it. And so there's all kinds of things that you can do. First of all, by the way, the fact it's flying in the atmosphere means it doesn't have what is arguably the single, uh, uh, the single most vexing challenge of ballistic missile defense, and that's discrimination. Trying to pick out in the vacuum and the cold of space uh, the reentry vehicle and the, and the weapon from all the other chaff and countermeasures and whatever flying junk and debris may be up there uh, flying along with it. The discrimination problem is the the central challenge of, of uh, mid-course uh, ballistic missile intercept. But guess what? When these things are flying in the atmosphere, <laughs> that kind of stuff is going to be stripped out instantly. And so you have one uh, object that by virtue of its friction with the atmosphere is, is generating heat. The challenge is that you don't see it soon enough from ground-based radars. Ground-based radars are fine for BMD, but not for this. And that's why over the past number of years, the single most important goal uh, that's been pursued is is a space-based sensor layer. And so instead of sitting on the ground, looking up and projecting energy into space from waiting for something to fly by, uh, you have infrared that's looking down from space, uh, looking for something hot uh, that's going by. Completely different architecture. Uh, that's That system, uh, which is being pursued, is called the Hypersonic and Ballistic Tracking uh, Space Sensor. Uh, that's, that's going forward. And there's also a glide phase interceptor. Uh, that's a, an interceptor that, that is going to be tailored to intercepting these things in the atmosphere as opposed to in the vacuum of space. Those are kind of two illustrative uh, programs. There's some other ideas we have in there, uh, a little more innovative things in terms of both directed energy, but also, uh, again, all, all you really need to do uh, to stop this thing is uh, cause it a catastrophic failure so that it can no longer maintain its existence in this uh, violent uh, hypersonic regime. So the, the good news is I think we can get after this, the sensors and the interceptors, uh, but first, we have to contend with the uh, the popular misperception that these things are are unstoppable. The the the, the bit about sensors, I think, is is really interesting because in my sort of non air defense, non missile defense mind, when you worry about this new offensive weapon, the defense is what do you shoot at it? Um, but you know, in your estimation is the priority, you know, if you could take our existing infrastructure, the existing architecture that you talked about, and you could keep all the same, you know, the same weapon systems, the same, you know, guns and missiles, things that you shoot at it, but put on a layer of new sensors, that would be more impactful than, say, keeping the same sensors, but, but you know, getting some new weapon systems? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you definitely want to get in the sensors first because you need to see it's coming. You need to have the warning uh, because you can't wait for, uh, the interceptor, the effector to see it, it uh, organically, as they say, because at that point, and then you launch, you're going to be in a, in a tail chase, as it were, uh, or you're not going to have time to get off the ground uh, to go get it. So you have to see it early. You got to have in that way defense in depth uh, to get that that early warning and that detection and that track. Uh, 
uh, before you can go after it. So absolutely, this is why in the report we say the single most important thing is getting after that space sensor layer. Uh, uh, that's that's the primary challenge. And by the way, even if even if you didn't get to the active uh, interceptor thing, just having the sensors allows you to have uh, other benefits, early warning, attribution, you know, and therefore deterrence, con contributing to deterrence, uh, even if you didn't have the active defense. You, you know, you might buy enough time to get your aircraft off the ground uh, from an airbase or something like that. Is, is the development of ballistic missiles and uh, its corollary, the, the development of ballistic missile defenses, is that a good analogy to understand the development of these systems? You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, I've, I've sometimes in the past said that, that we stand relative to this problem kind of how we we did relative to ballistic missile defense with SDI, you know, that was 39 mm -hmm. years ago. But that's not quite true. Uh, and the reason it's not quite true is that we're not starting from scratch. Uh, that, 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 that truly uh, the today's missile defense system is adaptable. Uh, we've got a lot of these sensors. These ground-based radars are not useless for this challenge, but they need to be adapted and supplemented. And so we're not starting from scratch for the hypersonic uh, defense mission in a way that, in relative terms, we were with the non-nuclear uh, ballistic missile defense mission in the 80s. So, you know, we, we've got air defenses, we've got ballistic missile defenses on ships, and, and the Army has that and Patriot and these kind of things. And today, they don't quite have the characteristics that we would want uh, for intercepting these things, but the good news is they can be evolved. And that so much technological progress on the interceptor and on the sensor side and the command and control, so much has, has gone on that we're, not, we're, we're truly not starting from scratch. You know, when we talk about um, air defense and, and especially missile defense, you know, there are tactical implementations of missile defense. There are also strategic implementations of, of, of missile defense. Is are, are hypersonic weapons best conceptualized as, as tactical tools or strategic tools or something kind of in the middle at the, at the sort of operational level of war? Well, you know, you, you, you're, you're at West Point, and, and uh, you'd understand that uh, uh, perhaps in a, in, a, in a precise sense. I think whether it is, quote-unquote, strategic or tactical uh, really depends on the context. Uh, let me put it in, in this phrase. Uh, is, are, are these hypersonic weapons to be thought of more as a regional problem or a homeland problem? Or conversely, should we think about these as a better ICBM uh, or as a better cruise missile I think in the near term, I tend to think of it as as largely, but not exclusively, a regional problem, although I like to say North America is a region too. Uh, but then certainly, I tend to think about them much more as a better cruise missile uh, than I do as a better ICBM. Look, we're, we're relying on uh, many, many administrations of both uh, uh, partisan stripes have said, look, for the big strategic nuclear question, that's what we rely on, deterrence by punishment. But for other kinds of, of missile threats, and this goes back to the, to the Obama administration, for instance, uh, that we're not going to uh, say that we're not going to defend against a, a Russian or Chinese regional uh, missile uh, challenge. And so you're going you're to see more of that, I think, in the coming years. And after all, the, the glide phase interceptor and the defense of Guam, that's going to be, a, I think, such a centerpiece of this uh, the Biden administration's missile defense policy. Um, the, what's that about? That's not about just a rogue. Uh, that's about a really wicked, really thoughtful and well-integrated uh, 360, you know, multi-axis uh, kind of attack that they're worried about. That's about the bigs. That's about Russia and China. 
uh, especially China in, in the case of Guam. So uh, we're we're reorienting to that that new challenge, uh, but it's not. You know, the, the word strategic and tactical can sometimes be misleading there. And so I, I tend to think of it as these are <laughs> the, the near term threat here is, is a better kind of cruise missile and a really well structured attack and a piece of a really well structured air missile attack. To what extent is uh, development of systems like these taking place independently, unilaterally within within the United States, within, uh, you know, within Russia, within China, but also within maybe the UK or, or France or, um, you know, some of our allies and partners. And to what extent is it, you know, is there is there a NATO effort to get it, to, for instance, to get its, you know, its head around the, this hypersonic problem, so to speak? Yeah. So this is not just an American idiosyncrasy. Uh, and, and I think the reason for that is that at the end of the day, these are missiles. These are just missiles. It may be that they become predominant, the characteristic of hypersonic weapons become much more uh, prolific and dominant uh, in the in the spectrum of, of missiles that, that the militaries arm themselves with. But at the end of the day, these are just missiles. And so you don't get to pick and choose whether you only deal with cruise missiles or quote unquote hypersonic missiles or, or the like. The enemy gets a vote. The enemy has voted on diversity. And so have we. And so we have to contend with that. Just this past week, uh, Australia announced, the United States and Australia together with the, the AUKUS arrangement said that, that there's going to be a, a new cooperation between Australia and the United States on both hypersonic strike and hypersonic defense. The Japanese are very interested in this. They're they're pretty close to the <laughs> to the Chinese after all. And so they're very concerned about that. And, and in the same way that with the early days of SDI, uh, that included a lot of bilateral or multinational cooperative programs funding scientists and engineers in NATO and all kinds of other places to, to wrap their heads around this. I absolutely, uh, completely think you're already seeing that. And I think you're going to see more of that. Uh, witness the demand signal for, uh, you know, any engineer who has the word hypersonic uh, in their resume uh, is in very high demand. Uh, and folks are just, you know, scooping, the, scooping those people up uh, as much as they can. You know, as we've, I've mentioned, we've talked about kind of the U.S. development of these systems, but obviously have mentioned uh, Russian, Chinese and other countries development of it as well. China tested a, a hypersonic system. I believe it was last August. Um, I don't know how, how closely you followed that, presumably, at least to some extent. Um, the reports that I saw, open source reports that I saw said that the, the vehicle traveled all the way around the world. As I was reading that, I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, we've got a lot of sensors that should presumably pick something like that up. And if you see something that's unidentified flying really fast, all moving all the way around the world, it makes you a little bit aware. It makes you aware of perhaps an enhanced sense of vulnerability. Is that is that accurate, or or are these again just delivery vehicles? You know, it doesn't necessarily change the strategic calculus about whether or not a state would use them uh, in in any given in any given type of attack or or choose to engage a particular target. So the, the news reports that you're referencing there that were broken in, I think, a series of maybe three or more uh, articles in the Financial Times uh, of London um, referenced uh, uh, that, that event that you, you spoke of, re referenced an event. Uh, and what you described there is, um, in back in the 1960s and thereabouts, was, was called a, a FOB, uh, a Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. And so, in other words, as you, as you said, you, it takes off orbits for a while, and then comes back down. Uh, now, in the 60s, you know, it could have cons consisted, and the Soviet tested this and other, other folks, uh, it could be an RV 
that then comes back down uh, ballistically, as it were, or it could be something that is using control surfaces to to maneuver. So that that test and the, and the kind of the conversation that it, that it prompted is it got everybody in a tizzy and you had people running around calling it a Sputnik moment, which I think was very unfortunate. The physics and the possibilities of doing fobs, you know, have been with us for for forever. Uh, and so in one respect, it, it, it kind of showed that the Chinese were uh, quite willing to break kind of unspoken norms about those things because it gets everybody a little twitchy because you don't know when or where it's going to come back down. But in terms of, of, of the so-called hypersonic thing, yeah, it's significant, uh, but I, 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 I would caution about uh, over, uh, over-interpreting that. The, the FOB thing, I mean, the fact that it was orbital <laughs> is, is perhaps even more significant than Upon reentry, like the space shuttle, uh, it, it would, would, would certainly have been coming in at, uh, at hyper, high, high supersonic or, uh, or hypersonic speed. Is there um, is there a hypersonic arms race taking taking shape? You know, uh, uh, there's there's so much baggage attached with that phrase mm-hmm. uh, that uh, I'm hesitant to answer it, uh, but I will nevertheless. Uh, I think the answer is. Kind of yes. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese started down this path before we figured out uh, that they were. And so from a kind of procurement standpoint, there is. I, I really hesitate to say it that way uh, in the sense that, you know, th- there's baggage attached to the phrase arms races like, well, we're just racing because we want to pound our chest and we don't want the other guys to have, you know, headlines that we don't. I, I don't think that's the case here. Uh, I think there are good military reasons for this capability. Uh, again, don't think about these things, uh, hypersonic missiles as a thing. Just think of them as a, a different capability for our, our, our missiles that we have today. Uh, and uh, so, yes, there, there's lots of that going on. Witness the the uh, schedule uh, urgency that the U.S. Army, uh, General Thurgood, uh, Neil Thurgood, for instance, he will have three batteries uh, of these things by 2023 on the schedule they're on, and he, he's not going to uh, suffer anybody that doesn't meet that deadline. So, in that sense, there, there's real urgency, but I think that, you know, the times require it. Uh, this is what uh, great power competition looks like, is there going to be urgency to uh, procuring certain kinds of capability. Well, to sort of uh, wrap up, again, you know, for listeners that uh, that have enjoyed this conversation, which I, 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 I'm confident they will, uh, if you want to learn more about it, the report is, is fascinating and, and goes into, you know, a level of detail that we haven't been able to in uh, in this form necessarily. Um, but I do also want to just kind of, you know, reiterate w- the sort of tone that you're, uh, that you have is that, Hey, this isn't, I don't want to, I don't want to miss, you know, put words in your mouth, uh, in, incorrectly, but this isn't necessarily as revolutionary as it sometimes the impression is sometimes given. Um, I wonder if you could, you know, for, for any listeners who don't say, go read the entire report, if there was sort of one thing that you wish everybody across the defense establishment, whatever their job, whatever their focus, one thing under, that everybody understood about hypersonics, what would that be? I would say that this is, uh, hypersonic missiles are just missiles. Uh, they're better, uh, and they're, they're less predictable, uh, and they're more capable, but at the end of the day, they're, they're just missiles. Uh, that is not a reason to not pursue them. Uh, but it's also, uh, I think, a reason to not uh, hyperventilate uh, about them uh, in terms of the threat, in terms of whenever China does these things. We should be expecting that at this point. Uh, we should be embracing 
uh, the pursuit of this capability for ourselves, both on the offensive side uh, and the defensive side. This is this is the next generation of missilery, uh, is what I would say. And you don't get a kind of checkout uh, of that particular, call it a uh, arms race, call it a uh, capability development or what have you. This is just where the where the threat is. The threat is going, and we have to contend with it. Well, Tom, thank you again very much for uh, for making some time for uh, to record this conversation with me and, and for all the phenomenal work that you and your team at the Missile Defense Project uh, have done. Thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.